So let's look at, well, you'll be looking at Proverbs 14. There's also some other passages that you might want to note and always be ready at Romans during this time. Romans, the epistle. Viewed as a whole, the epistle to the Romans reveals a closely knit argumentation which is hidden only to those who do not exert enough effort over it. That's a quote from Ernst Kosemann, whose famous commentary was written in 1980. He was one of Jürgen Moltmann's mentors. He was a phenomenal theologian. There are things I disagree with him about that will be coming up, but there'll be loving disagreements. But he said this, and it was much to my challenge as one who's entered into a study of Romans together with you, viewed as a whole. And that's what I'm really emphasizing for our first few Sundays in Romans. Viewed as a whole. What is Romans? Just what is it? What is Romans the epistle? The epistle to the Romans, he says, reveals a closely knit argumentation, which is hidden only to those who do not exert enough effort over it. Now that was my challenge. We have to exert, I do, I have to exert enough effort over Romans. And by the grace of God, this argumentation, a closely knit argumentation, is being revealed and manifested in Romans. And I think it's spectacular, it's astonishing, it's astounding, and I just hope that my spirit in the Holy Spirit will be as audacious and bold as Paul was in proclaiming this message in our generation. In Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul alludes to the concise, traditional account of the gospel of God, which the Romans would very well have known. It was all about his son, which, quote, according to the flesh, was a descendant of David. And Paul is just merely recounting the traditional account of the gospel. According to the flesh, a descendant of David and who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of him from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. This is Romans 1, basically the essence of it in 1, 3, and 4. Now, as a descendant, or the descendant, or the seed of David, Jesus Christ is of the royal lineage of Judah, as Revelation reveals him as the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, a slain and slaughtered and raised Lamb. As a descendant of the seed of David, then, he comes from the royal lineage, and this is profoundly important to Romans, royal lineage. Paul is an imperial slave, not just of any king, not of a Caesar, but of the king of kings. And the declaration by God, this is my son, the declaration of God that he is the son of God is a declaration of a king to his son when his son ascends to the throne. In Jesus Christ's case, he ascended to the throne of the universe and he is Lord of the living and the dead. He is the Lord of all. And this is the proclamation that we make. So as the descendant of David by birth, Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, and Paul said this also, and Paul said this also in second Timothy two, eight, remember Jesus Christ of the seed of David raised from the dead according to my gospel of the seed of David according to my gospel Paul agrees with the traditional account of the gospel of Jesus Christ with the basics of his death his burial his resurrection but Paul expounds on the implications of what that means it means a command of life for all humankind is what the gospel means. And that's what Romans is, a proclamation of it. In Galatians, 
and we studied it briefly, Paul made much of Jesus Christ being the singular seed or descendant, singular, of Abraham. Both Abraham and David are the subjects of Romans 4. We'll get there before too long, really. Galatians 3.16, Paul makes a big point out of saying the seed is one, and the one seed is Christ. Christ is the one in whom the promise to Abraham was made that all the nations will be blessed, says Yahweh, in your seed. And the seed is Christ. It does not say some from all the nations. It says all the nations will be blessed. In him, in his seed. Again, the promise is unconditional. It doesn't say the nations, all the nations will be blessed in his seed if they choose to believe in him. It says all the nations will be blessed in your seed, Abraham, Christ, period, over and out. It's an unconditional promise. It has a universal horizon. All the nations in all the times of human history. So, in Romans, the leading declaration has to do with Jesus Christ as the seed of David. As the seed of David, Jesus Christ has been born like Isaac, the son of Abraham, was born in this regard. He was born by a supernatural act of God, like Isaac was. Unlike Isaac, when he was offered he was not spared. God did not spare his son, his son as he spared Abraham's son Isaac, but freely gave him over on behalf of us. Guess what word is used after that? Us. All. How shall he not with him now freely give us all things? That means he's given us everything. Death is ours. It's not someone else's to lord over us. Death, I will be your plague. And I thought of that many times because I know my mom did not see death. She spoke a few words and bowed her head. She didn't see death. Jesus said, those who hear my words will not see death. They don't see it coming. They don't experience it. She saw coming something of a glorious party and she loved parties. She saw something coming, and she was surprised that Becky didn't know and feel that power, that invitation, and all the people that seemed to be beckoning her. Well, better than any Clint Eastwood line is the line that Jesus Christ uttered in Hosea thirteen fourteen: Death, I'm your plague. Nobody's ever beat that line. Don't even try. And so, unlike Isaac, Jesus Christ was born by a supernatural act, but without a human father. This being the divine action par excellence, the greatest action of God in history before the resurrection was the incarnation. We celebrate it as Christmas. But Christmas seems to be swallowed up in a lot of other things today, but I know that you know the true meaning of it. Up until the resurrection, the incarnation was the divine act par excellence in all of history. That is, until he, born of a woman, becomes the firstborn of the dead. Colossians 1.18 calls him that. So does Revelation 1.5. And there is a wonderful continuity, and I might even do a series beyond this series called John and Paul because they agree so much together. And so he is raised from the dead with divine power. And by that divine power and by that divine act, he is declared to be the son of God. 
the divine Son of God. His resurrection from the dead is spoken of in the second psalm, and I said the psalms are going to figure prominently into our interpretation, so forgive me for not telling you to turn here, but I'll read it. Psalm 2-7 says, I will proclaim far and wide the decree, and that word is prostagma, prostagma, and it's sort of like another word we're going to see in a moment, prostagma. Just so that I can remember how I write the Greek, I'll do this up in the Greek. I have to keep in practice here, too. Prostagma. I will proclaim far and wide the prostagma, which means command of Yahweh. This is my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, this means one thing. It means that God has begotten his son in an eternal day without time. He has begotten him of his own substance, and it's not something that happened in time. As the Nicene Creed rightly said, he was begotten, not made. But it also means today I have begotten you from the dead. This day I have begotten you because he becomes the firstborn from the dead. And there is yet to be a resurrection of the dead, and that is all-inclusive of all the dead. Some will be raised to be rectified or judged unto life, and others will be raised already having been given life in this life. But all will be given life. That's a command of God. You've got nothing to add to it. You cannot change it. You cannot amend it. I can't either. No preacher, no theologian, no pope, no cardinal, no monsignor, no bishop, no imam, no self-styled prophet can change God's command of life. And this is his command. In Christ, all will be made alive. You have no choice in it. And I'll show you that in a moment. You have no choice. You have no choice in the matter. Now... What can the kings of the earth say to this, says Psalm 2? What can they say? They can say, yes, okay, he's the king of kings. Or they can say, no, that cannot stand. And they do say that. And they say, let's break their bands asunder, break the bands of the Lord and his anointed. Let's break their unity, that which unifies them, let's break it up. They can rebel. They can unwisely choose to break the bonds of unity between Yahweh and his anointed, but that's the ultimate fool's errand. They will simply perish in that effort. They will perish in the way. Kiss the sun, says the scripture, lest you perish in the way, meaning that the way they choose, which is against the king of kings, is a way that will perish. They will perish in that way. That whole enterprise will perish. In Proverbs 14, 27, and this is something that I was preparing, I was writing, I was typing, I was reading, and then this jumped out at me and kind of slapped me upside the head. Proverbs 14, 27, the Greek text. Now there's the Hebrew text called Masoretic, the Masoretic Hebrew text. It's flawed. It's flawed in a lot of places. The Septuagint translation is actually much better. The Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, much more accurate. The Septuagint translation almost always cited, quoted, reproduced in the New Testament Greek scriptures. Proverbs 14.27. Your translation probably says, because it's from the Masoretic Hebrew text, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. But in Proverbs 14, 27, the Greek text has the command of the Lord, not the fear of the Lord. The command of the Lord is a fountain of life, a fountain of life. The source of life for all is what it means. We've seen that before in Psalm 36, 9, have we not? With you is the fountain of life, and in your light, we will see light. The fountain of life with God 
bubbles over until all live. For by the righteous action of one, by the obedience of one to the extent of death by crucifixion, all are given rectifying life. Romans 5.18. I want to say that's the heart of the matter, but with Paul, one thing I've learned about Paul, studying him now for 40 plus years, I've learned one thing about him. He's always at the heart of the matter. There's nothing he's ever written that is not at the heart of the matter. There's nothing that's ever proclaimed about him in Acts or taught about him in Acts or what he says in the book of Acts that is not at the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the beating heart of the Messiah, his Savior, my Savior, yours, our Lord Jesus Christ. God commands life. And then it says, turning people from the snares of death. The command of life, the command of God is the fountain of life. In other words, the main command of God spoken of in Romans sixteen twenty six, by the command of God, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalyptic disclosure of a mystery. That mystery being that he will sum up everything in his son, Christ Jesus, and comprise all created reality of his son, Christ Jesus. The preaching of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of this command by the command of life. And so God commands life. And this overused, misapplied, and almost nauseating saying, it is what it is, only applies here, really and truly. It is what it is, because I am that I am. When God commands life, it just is. And it is what it is, because his name is I am that I am. So then, and please notice this phrase we'll pick up in a moment. It is a fountain of life turning people from the snares of death. It is only when you have this life commanded that you turn from the snares of death, which is the power of sin. You can't turn from the power of sin to be saved. Being saved and given life, you turn from the snares of, of death, which is sin. You don't even know what sin is until you've been saved from it, placed in Christ, and look back. You don't even know what it is. Sinner's prayer, <laughs> sinner's snare. So then, It is what it is because I am that I am. God commands life for all humankind in Christ. I love it when he confronts the Sadducees who don't believe in resurrection and they don't believe in angelic beings. They don't believe in these supernatural things and they only go by the first five books of the law called the Pentateuch. And so they try to trick Jesus. According to the Leveret law, if a man... If a woman loses her husband, then she should marry. If there's a brother involved, the brother should take up for his brother and marry her. And they said, what if that happened seven times to a woman? You can just see him smirking in the background. We're going to get him with this one. Whose husband? Who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? And so Jesus hits them twice, once where they don't believe in resurrection, once where they don't believe in angels, and he hits them a third time with a third punch that knocks them right out because he uses their Torah to answer the question. He said, in the resurrection, they are neither married nor given in marriage, but they are like the angels. Oh, you don't believe in angels? They are like the angels. And then he said, even as... Moses said, when God said to him, I am that I am, and he said, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. And you know what Jesus taught from that in Luke 20, 38? I'm telling you this. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Because even the ones that are dead to you are alive to God. Even those that are in graves are alive to God. Even those that are in urns are alive to God. 
That's why he said, I'm the God of Abraham, meaning presently, because Abraham is present with me. Of Isaac, because Isaac is alive and present with me. And Jacob, because Jacob is alive and present with me. And they will be bodily alive by resurrection and present with me when all is said and done, because I've commanded life for all. And that's in the law. That, he quotes, he finds resurrection in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. How do you do that? Nobody would have thought of that. Except the Messiah himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way for all. He's the truth for all. And he's the life for all. I'm one of those preachers, and no, I was almost a theologian, but I haven't reached that status. But I'm one of those preachers that's not maybe about this, but convinced that it's for all. God commands life for all humankind in Christ. And it is not whether I say so or not. Who... For mom's sake, I'll watch my language. Who do we think we are? It is not, not what it is because I say it isn't. Any more than God is not named I am that I am because I say no, you're not. What does that have to do with, do I change God by disagreeing that he is named I am that I am? Or if I disagree, God commands a blessing and it is life. And it's not because you said yes to Jesus. Or because you invited him into your heart. Any more than you said in utero, that means still in mommy's womb. I accept your plan that I should live. He says, okay, you can be born then. You were born and then you lived. Now, in Genesis twenty four fifty, there's a couple guys that you don't really think about too often, Laban and Bethuel. Laban and Bethuel. And I only want to focus on one thing they said. They said this, Genesis 24:50. They said, This is the command of the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. Hmm. Sorry to steal your line, Pastor Brown, but hmm. This is the command of the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. How about the command of life for all? We have no choice in the matter for that either. Christ made the choice for us when he said, not my will, but thine be done, Father. He made our choice for us. This is the command of God executed in Christ who said yes for us. Who are we? We can't say yes, sir. In fact, the, the Hebrew and the Greek both agree on this. The literal rendition of that is, we can't say to you anything bad or good. It's a command of the Lord. We can't say anything bad. We can't even say the command is bad. We disagree with it. The command is good. We disagree. The command is not logical. It does not fit with my liturgical upbringing. It is not logical. God cannot command life for all. Especially because I think of certain sinners that have done such horrible things that I haven't done. No, and you haven't done it, but they are you exaggerated. That's all they are. They are you exaggerated. In Adam, all die. In Adam, all not only sinned when Adam sinned in that one sense, but everyone sinned volitionally and responsibly and guiltily since then, without exception. The whole human race is under the power of sin. It's not a matter of genetics. It's not a matter of the biological transmission of sin to all human beings. It's a matter of Adam unleashing sin as a power that controls all humanity. 
And so those who want to rebuke Romans 5 by the use of the genome and the genetic study of the genome have fallen flat on their faces. Because it's not about biology and it's not about genetics. It's about theology and it's about homardiology. And guess what Romans is? Paul concluding everyone under sin and then concluding everyone under mercy so that he can shut down every little bit of pride and every little group bias in Rome so he can unite the saints there because where the saints are united, God commands a blessing, which is the experience of life forevermore. The life of the coming age. And guess what that does? That makes a united front for missions. Missions. Paul is trying to bring about, or I won't say trying, he's called to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. Because when there is a witness of the, the obedience of faith among all the nations, guess what that is? A precursor, a pre-announcement of all the nations themselves participating in the obedience of faith, the allegiance to the king of kings. Every knee will bow, you know. And every means every. Preacher, theologian, cardinal, pope, monsignor, bishop, most holy reverend, dear old doctor so-and-so, or self-righteous Christian, That's everybody. In other words, the command of Yahweh is done. Nobody can say anything about it, good or bad. You can be more moral than God or holier than him and say that just doesn't strike my moral sensibilities. Damn your moral sensibilities, you self-righteous twit. Sorry, mom. She wouldn't like that. And she's told me as much sometimes because she's watched a lot of these messages. And she didn't like it when her priest told a joke. She's got a priest down there. Every time he opens up his sermon, it's a joke. And my mom's going, you know. And it wasn't so much that People were laughing and clapping at his jokes. She wasn't mad at that so much. as The jokes really weren't that funny. But this is the command of the Lord. So that's the only time I feel right in saying it is what it is. People usually say it is what it is because they're resigned to something they hate. Oh, it is what it is. I'm resigned to it. What the hell? Actually, I know my mom's not listening. She's got better things to listen to up there. So, it's a matter of see you later. So, it just is. Nobody can say anything about it. That's what Laban and Bethuel said. God made a command. There's nothing we can, we have no choice in the matter. The command is made. And I love to apply that to the command of life. It's been made. You got nothing to say about it. You can't say so-and-so should deserve to burn in flames forever and ever because God commanded life for him. Whether you like it or not, whether it suits your morality or your religious upbringing or your self-righteousness doesn't matter. Or if you think that's a good idea, that doesn't matter either. I think it's a good idea. That doesn't matter. That doesn't change anything. God didn't do it because I would have thought it was a good idea. Oh, I'm going to compute life to every. I'm going to give life to all the humankind because I know Rick Knapp's going to be born someday and agree with me that it's a good idea. He doesn't care. The command of God, which is a fountain of life means something. A fountain of life means it's the source of life for all. He, according to 1 Timothy 6.13 and following, it seems that God gives life to all beings. All beings. All rational beings. All created beings. It seems that that's what God does. And so the fountain of life means he's the source of life for all. It just happens to be where brethren dwell together in unity. As Pastor Brown's prayer, oddly enough, brought up, 
Their God commands the blessing of life forevermore. He commands the blessing life forevermore. And Paul knows if he can round up all the saints and all the tenement churches, the slum churches, the suburban churches, the workplace churches, the slaves and the free, the patricians and the plebeians among the Roman saints that are at odds with each other, the so-called weak in faith, the so-called strong in faith, those that despise the strong and those that judge the weak and judge the strong and judge the weak. All these groups shattered and fractured If they're united, guess what Paul's going to expect? To go to Rome and get some serious, tactical, logistical support for his mission to Spain. Because he's not only obligated to the Jew and the Gentile, but also the barbarian. Which is what the Jews and the Gentiles thought about those who had never heard. That's what Romans is all about. It's after something. This life is what it is. It's not put into effect. Listen carefully. It is not put into effect because men say one thing or another about it. Nor is that rendered ineffective, that command of life, because men speak against it. It is what it is because it came from I am that I am. It comes from Yahweh, the fountain of life which we've seen before, not only in Proverbs 14, 27, but Psalm 36, 9, is by the command of Yahweh. It is not a matter of choice. This really gets at the heart of the heart of Christian pride and Christian testimonies. God commands life for all. And he determines the time and the manner and place when people are born. And he determines the time and the manner and place when individuals are born again by his decree and his command. When he's pleased to reveal his son to you, he does. And it's not because I've browbeaten someone. It's not because I've preached with power or passion. It's because God chooses. And sometimes he does under the preaching to reveal his son to people. And so we preach. And he chooses the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of preachers to proclaim the word of the cross as the means of salvation. God commands life for all as in Adam, all die first Corinthians 15, 22, which he wrote before Romans. So in Jesus Christ, the seed of David raised from the dead, according to Paul's gospel, all will be made alive. All will be made alive is the command of the eternal God. He said that. He said that sometime in what we call eternity. All will be made alive. It's the command of the eternal God, says Romans 16, 26. And Romans 16, 26 goes all the way back to Romans 1, 20. I'll even have some modifications of my better call Paul because that's how fast things change when you study and study and study. Romans 16, 26, the command of the eternal God goes back to Romans 1, 20, where it talks about God's eternal power. There he uses, very rarely used in the scripture, idios. Idios, that means eternal. Aeonios never does. But it's often quoted or it's often cited as or translated as eternal when it only means eternal if it's referring either to God or to the attributes of God. But in Romans 1.20, it is the eternal power. And that's the word dunamis, idios and dunamis and divine nature. This time it's theotes in Romans 1.20, his divine nature which is his essence manifested in action. That's extremely important to Romans. His eternal power and nature. His nature, theotes there, means his essence demonstrated in action. Righteousness, therefore, the key word of Romans, the righteousness of God, is not just an attribute of God, but it's an attribute of God in action, in an act of universal deliverance. How can pride and prejudice 
and bias of group against group survive when it's proven to you that we are all ungodly, that we are all unrighteous, that we were all under sin, that we were born and conceived in it, and that we lived under it. And it's a universal homardiology that Paul brings forth, Jews and Gentiles alike. How can we be prejudiced or biased or claim some superior honor over others when we're all ungodly? And Christ did die for the ungodly, I believe. He died for the ungodly. And God, the Father, because Christ died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6, God justifies the ungodly. So Paul brings forth a doctrine of universal homardiology, universal sinfulness, and then he goes all the way up through Romans 11.32 to bring in a doctrine of universal mercy. How can there be, how can there breathe the old man who claims and craves superior honor over others, who claims his life matters more than some other life? How can that prejudice, that bias, that evil survive when all are concluded to be under sin and all are the objects and the ultimate recipients of divine salvific mercy and equally the objects of divine love. God is love, but that's not just his essence. That's his essence manifested in action and his love. Christ died for the ungodly, and that's all of us. You might not like that about yourself. You might have thought you were born pristine and sinless and innocent, and angels clapped, and there was a light in the east. At least I never killed anybody. Do you ever slander anybody? That's murder. It's equivalent to it. Verbal murder, verbal assassination. People that have done the most horrendous atrocities in this life are just you, exaggerated. You, given the right power and opportunity. Me, exaggerated. Sin. We were all under it. And it's only when we're given life that we're turned from the snares of death. It's only when we're given life It is God's goodness that leads us to repentance. It isn't our repentance that leads us to God's goodness. It's God's goodness that leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4. And what did the Jewish leaders say in Jerusalem when Cornelius' house, a whole bunch of Gentiles, just got swept up into the presence of God and had the Holy Spirit given to them? What did they say? They rejoiced and they were astonished, says Acts eleven eighteen, that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. Granted it, granted it, granted it. So I asked the question of myself, no pastor or teacher or theologian or evangelist or cardinal or bishop or pope, no imam or self-styled prophet or prophetess, can say anything about this. Whether it's a good idea or a bad one. In this area, your opinion don't mean doodly squat, as Granny Hawkins said in Josie Wales. All will be made alive. Remember Granny Hawkins? She came out on, she said, so you be Josie Wales. You know, they say they're going to Heal your hide, nail you to a barn door, that you're a mean and desperate man. And he says, is that right? And she said, you know what I say all that big talk is? Doodly squat. (laughs) And she cackled and smoked her corncob pipe. So what if an evangelist had come to Granny Hawkins' house and said, you know, your sons and daughters out here sinful are going to go burn in hell. She says, I think all that big talk is doodly squat. That's just for the crowd here that thinks I'm a little too theological. That's just for you. Okay. Now, all will be made alive. But not this alone. This isn't alone what God's command is. 
This is a decidedly historical and radically Christocentric doctrine here. He doesn't just say all that will be made alive. He said, in Christ, all will be made alive. That's what he said. And that's the mystery of God's intent. Because he said it in Ephesians 1.10, the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in Christ, who is the life. All will have life in Christ. It's radically Christocentric. More Christocentric than people who say they're Christocentric can imagine. Be careful of someone who says they're Christocentric, because they're not. Because if you're Christocentric, you believe you can't be Christocentric enough, so you can't say, I'm Christocentric. Believe it or not, that's a loving rebuke. That's not a vicious slap at anybody. That's a loving rebuke of someone who will respond to that and be brought around. In Christ, all will be made alive. So in Proverbs 14, 27, the Greek text has the command of God as a fountain of life. The Masoretic Hebrew text has Yerah for fear. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. That's not what it says. The word is prostagma. So what's Paul thinking here? What's his argumentation? Are we putting enough effort into it? Are we working very hard in the Lord? As Persis did in Romans 16. And as Tryphena and Tryphosa did. Dainty and disdain. As they were called. Are we working hard enough to see the cohesive argumentation here that all will be made alive what's he thinking what's Paul thinking about in Romans his epistle he is thinking of the command of God which is life and that's what he says in Romans 16 25 and 26 by the command of the everlasting God the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse the shocking disclosure of what a mystery that was kept silent for long ages gone by but is now being manifested not just in Paul's writings but in the writings of the prophets all of whom talked about apocatastasis panton the restoration of all things and all beings So, Laban and Bethuel, Laban was quite a trickster too. He was a deceiver and he deceived even Jacob. You can't BS a BSer, they say. Laban. But he made this conclusion that a lot of theologians don't make. We have no choice in the matter. Why can't a preacher just admit that? God commanded life for all in Christ. We have no choice in the matter. Now let's preach. Let's evangelize. Let's proclaim the gospel of an all-saving Savior. God commanded life. Who knows, while we're preaching, God may grant repentance to people that are under terrible snares of the devil himself. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. Whether we say yes or no, it does not alter, it doesn't even amend the command. Nor does our yes or no make the command effective or ineffective. Now Jesus was dead when he was laid out in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus was dead. He made no bones about it. When he kept talking about Lazarus being asleep, and they say, what do you mean asleep? He's asleep, asleep. What do you mean? He's talking metaphorically. Jesus finally said, he's dead. Dead. Now I'm going to go raise him from the dead. He's bodily dead. But of course, he's only speaking in human terms because nobody's dead to God. All are alive. With him, all are living. So, God commanded life for his son, for Jesus. And he arose from the dead. Jesus didn't say no to the father and just stay dead. He came alive. As he said to John, who fell at his feet like a dead man in Patmos, I was dead. 
but now look at me. I'm alive forevermore, and I have possession of the keys of death and of Hades. What does that mean? It means nobody's going there. I got the keys. They're locked up. I got the keys. So don't fear. He didn't say, I got the keys, and I decide who goes there and who doesn't, because that would fear the hell out of me. If I wasn't afraid for myself, I'd be afraid of some, for someone. Revelation 118, but God commanded life for all in Christ. So when Christ came forth from the grave, he came forth for all of us, and in one sense, as all of us. He commanded life for all in the resurrection of the dead because he commanded life for Jesus by his resurrection from the dead. He commanded life for all, which will occur in the resurrection of the dead, because he commanded life for Jesus in his unique resurrection from the dead. The firstborn from the dead means many are to follow. So in closing, we have in Proverbs 14.27 a potential insight. Related to Romans, the epistle, viewed as a whole. The command from the Lord turns people from the snares of death. We don't turn, not at first. The fountain of life turns us. He turns us, then we turn. This is what Romans 6, 1 all the way to eight thirteen is all about. He turns us and we turn. And the power is by the Holy Spirit. He turns us from the snares of death, which includes sin as an ensnaring power that leads to death. It includes the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, which lusts against the spirit and tends toward death. And it includes even Torah, the law of God, hijacked by sin and weak through the flesh, also tending toward death. Only our, when we are rectified or set right by being given Christ's life do we turn from the snares of death it's actually almost funny if it weren't tragic that preachers preach turn from sin and God will give you life turn or burn they say cute but sickening tragic those preachers have already lost their power. They don't even know it, though, because they make up for it in human dynamics. They don't know. They make up for the content with volume. They think people are being affected by it. They're being infected by it. And I'm not saying that to create divisions. I'm saying that as a loving way of reproving and rebuking and correcting through the word so that we can all get on the one page where God commands life. And so that as a result, the word of life can be held forth by us in Philippians 2.16, in a darkened age, in an age of perversity, in an age of blasphemy. We need to take the gospel not just where it's the name Jesus has never been heard, but to places like the USA where it's only been heard in empty liturgy or in blasphemous curses. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ was declared with power to be God's son and his ascendant king of kings. Paul's just doing what the psalmist is doing in Psalm 2. I will proclaim far and wide the command of the Lord. Romans, the epistle, is all about the command of life by the eternal God, a command that entailed obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, I'll tell you one area, and I'll, I'll just close with this, but I'll tell you one area where I disagree with Ernst Cosman and with a whole bunch of other theologians of great repute. Many of them don't believe that Romans sixteen twenty-five to 27 was written by Paul. Others believe that it wasn't supposed to be where it's supposed to be. One thing our study of Romans is going to do is recover Romans 16, 25 to 27 and show that it's exactly where it needs to be, that it was inspired by God, that it was written by Paul, and that it's not only the crown and capstone of Romans, but it is the crown of the collection of all of Paul's epistles by the command of the eternal God. Proclaim 
the gospel. Proclaim Jesus Christ according to the disclosure of a mystery kept silent for long ages past, but is now apocalyptically revealed, shockingly, with universal results by the eternal command of God, the command of the eternal God. I will proclaim far and wide the command of God because it's a command of life. If one died for all, then all died. If one was made alive, then all will be made alive. That's a command of God. You've got nothing to say about it. And I wasn't given life in Christ because I said yes to Christ. I said no to him a thousand times until I said yes to him, which was his movement in me to say yes and was nothing more than a participation in his yes to God for me. That's all it was. And so what is this obedience of faith that Paul's bringing about by the gospel? It's brought about by the gospel. It's brought about by the gospel. It isn't some have weak faith and some are strong in faith, like they're accusing each other in Rome or priding themselves to have strong faith and these have weak faith. It's just one faith. There is one faith, says Ephesians 4. There is one Lord, one Father, one faith, one baptism by one spirit. One Lord, one body. But emphasis on one faith. There isn't weak faith, strong faith. You've got a strong doorway to heaven, so pray for me. It's one faith. And guess what that one faith is? The faith of Jesus Christ participated in by us, which will be participated in by all of the nations. It will be an allegiance. It will be a fidelity. It will be a willing, universal willingness of love and faith experienced by all the nations, by all the people of all the nations. And that's the coming world. That's the coming world. There's already hints of it. The hints of it are here. They are you. They are living epistles of people beginning to not only grasp the insight, but shine with it. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that this command of life will reverberate, will echo, will sound far and wide in our generation. For even as Romans was effective and powerful, spectacular and glorious in its impact in the 50s of the first century A.D., let it be so now in the second decade of the third millennium from the cross. Let it be so.